Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, jmandtheam.org. And once again, we have a fantastic lineup this evening. We're going to be hearing from experts and prognosticators from Israel and here in the U.S., more specifically trying to talk about some of the political turmoil in that place upstate called Albany. And as usual, it's very, very difficult to figure out if you're not an old hand. So fortunately, we have people who are going to come and guide us. And as weeks go on, every day we're talking about things in Washington. And if you think that we are somehow going to rise above, and that's the term I hear all the time when I watch uh, CNBC pretty much uh, a lot of the day is rise above, rise above the politics, rise above for the good of the country. So I'll make a quick comment about that because I get asked quite frequently how I feel about what's going on and who's, which side is the more partisan and which side is in the wrong on being unable to negotiate the fiscal morass that seems to stymie this country, this great country, the United States, but seems to be headed over this fiscal cliff. Might be a misnomer, but I'll call it the fiscal cliff nonetheless. Now, why can't politicians come together for the greater good? And why can't they just do these simple things like trim around, cut spending a little bit, raise taxes a little bit, and everybody can come to some kind of compromise? Isn't governing the act of compromise, doesn't everybody feel that this election, this past election, set everything, continued in place, same president, Republicans in control of the House, and the Democrats in control of the Senate by a slightly wider margin. Why can't everybody just kind of come together for the good of the country right now? Nobody has to worry about re-election for at least two years. And one thing I think we should consider for ourselves is that in Washington and pretty much every other place where the sausage is made, where politics and legislation come together in order to make decisions is that everyone out there has a pet project. You know, just to bring it home for a little bit, they were talking about ending charitable deductions and they want to go ahead and end charitable deductions as a way to close the gap without actually raising taxes. And of course that would be, is predicted to be a disaster by the nonprofit sector. But I'll tell you one thing. What about ending charitable deductions for overseas charities? All right, let's think about that for a second. Ending charitable deductions for overseas charities. Why is it that the U.S. taxpayers should subsidize money that goes to Israel, for example? And I know I'm being controversial. I know that nobody's going to really love this suggestion, and I'm not suggesting it. I'm not saying, but I'm giving you an example of a little piece that people protect. In the end, everybody wants somebody else to be cut, but they don't want themselves to be cut, which is exactly why we can't come to any kind of deal. Nobody wants the compromise on their little thing. And imagine what would happen. Why should the U.S. taxpayer say, okay, you're sending money to some cause overseas, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in China, but it's money's not being spent here at home. And why should there be a, if you want to do that, that's great, but why should you get a tax deduction for doing that, for spending that money, for giving that money overseas? And it's a good question. I think it's a, it's a legitimate, debatable question, something that we should think about and consider. But it's just an example of something that's protected, that people in Washington will fight for. They're not going to fight to keep entitlements because people 
live off of those and people are protected by that and they're going to fight to keep taxes low or lower or not to raise them. So that's why we have an impasse, folks. And it doesn't seem to be getting better because when you try and simplify things in Washington, all the people who have protected interests, they come out and they say, oh, what about me? What about me? You got to protect me. And of course, that's really what it comes down to. There's a lot of me's out there, a lot of people with interests, a lot of people that need things. So we mentioned Israel. We mentioned charitable deductions in Israel. And one thing that is going on as the conflict seems to have be at a low simmer right now, that being the conflict between Israel and Hamas or Israel and the Palestinians, which saw both military and diplomatic versions over over the last, as we've discussed over the last two weeks. But Israel also has elections coming up. And I got to be honest, I feel like I understand politics pretty well. I cannot for the life of me, understand what's going on in these Israeli elections. Every single day, there seems to be a new political party. Every single day, there seems to be a new political personality. There's a lot of musical chairs. So fortunately, we have somebody who's going to help us. Mitchell Barak has been an advisor, a speechwriter to Perez, to Sharon, to, to Netanyahu. He's a pollster. He knows the pulse of what's going on. He is an American. I can proud to say that uh, we knew each other way back when for many years. And always been a pundit who I've been impressed with him. He's a frequent com- commentator for IBA News and a sought-after advisor to many people in Israel. Mitchell, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to uh, participate. So take us through the the landscape of the Israeli elections, the political parties, if you will, that seem to fade and you know, come come in and out of the of the spectrum every uh, every day or so. Well, uh, fortunately, uh, Thursday uh, afternoon the uh, lists close, so uh, we'll finally know who's really running for Knesset, which parties are running, and who's on those lists. So until it officially closes, which and we'll probably only find out next week who those parties are, we still don't know because it's changing every day. People are moving parties. Um, there's a certain uh, problem here is that, you know, you can start with one party, and by the time you finish uh, your uh, term in the Knesset, you're already with another party. And it's very demoralizing to the Israeli public, and there's a certain amount of moral bankruptcy, because even some of those people who are doing that were actually either running as heads of, they were chairman of their party, or ran for the chairman of the party. I mean, one example is Tippi Livni. She's now formed her own party. She, six, eight months ago, she was chairman of the, chairperson of the Kadima party. Well, it's, a, it's not very, uh, very good uh, uh, political uh, morality to leave your party and then form a new one because you lost the election. So, but Mitchell, just, Mitchell, explain for a second, for an American, for somebody who's not used to that style of government or the parliamentary system and, and lists and, and places on the list, give us, give us an idea about how that works and how it is that people are it, it American politicians are obviously free to vote as they wish. They can also change their party affiliation, but they don't necessarily get to take the party with them. It seems like Tippy Livney, for example, you know, she left her party and she took she took Kadima away from Mofaz, correct? Well, no, she took a number of uh, members of Knesset with her. There's a law that if you take uh, a third of your uh, Knesset faction, 
they can form, not only can they form their own party or go to another party, but they take the funding with them. It's all about funding. Israel is a big a pork barrel politics uh, place, and uh, it's all about the funding because every member of Knesset gets uh, funding for the election campaign. So without that funding, it would have been hard for her to run a campaign. So she needed that, uh, those, those, uh, those funds. But just to bring you through it, I mean, Israel is a parliamentary democracy, uh, unlike the U.S., which is uh, a winner-take-all election. If you vote for a Republican and the Democrat wins, uh, you're not represented in Congress in your congressional district or in, for the presidency or in the Senate or in the state legislature. It's a winner-take-all system. And the system in Israel is uh, it's a, a proportional representation uh, system where you vote for a list. And on that list, of uh, there's 120 members of Knesset, which was uh, conveniently the same number from the people of the Great Assembly, the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, which is where they got the uh, number from. Uh, and you vote for a list, a party list, and on that list is uh, 120 names. And depending on what percentage of the vote uh, each of those parties gets uh, over a certain threshold, which is about 2%, um, you just go down the list and those people are members of Knesset. So the makeup of the Israeli Knesset will be similar to the makeup of Israel, um, you know, as far as representation of different groups and different classes and different kinds of people. And the good thing about the system, there are a lot of bad things about the system, but the good thing about it is, uh, you know, even if you vote for the Labor Party or you vote for the Likud or you vote for a religious party, um, whether or not your party is in government and makes up the government and is part of the ruling coalition, you're still going to have representation in the Knesset. You'll still have someone that you can talk to. You'll still have someone that can initiate legislation on your behalf or doing the things you want. So there are some advantages to the system. How many parties are going to be running in the upcoming well, elections? Well, I, I have to say, I mean, you know, there will be serious parties running and not serious parties running. Probably about, I would think, uh, eight to ten parties uh, will pass the threshold. Uh, I just saw, on, I was a guest tonight on the English News, the IBA News, and uh, I had a, a very hard time uh, uh, keeping my composure because the story um, before me that, that was brought was uh, they went to the Knesset to interview some of these new parties that are registering and are going to officially run. And one of the parties is called the Pirate Party. Okay, And they interviewed a guy who actually had a plastic hook uh, on his hand. So what, what's I mean, the Hebrew, we have what's real the, jokers. What's the Hebrew word for, pi- for pirate? The, uh, I don't know who, who's going to really vote for the Pirate Party, but uh, they can officially run. And there's the Marijuana Legalization Party. There's the Economics Party. There's a whole bunch of parties which have no chance. Uh, just people run every year. So where Ehud Barak retired, uh, there, the left seems to be, or the center-left, or the left, I'm not sure you know, what, what the appropriate adjectives are. They seem to be in disarray. Uh, there is a, I guess, strong feeling that uh, you'll probably see a return of uh, of Bibi, uh, and uh, or it'll be, and it'll be a you know center right or right right government. Uh, but what what it, all this jockeying for position? And as you said, it's it's very disconcerting to a lot of voters in Israel. Does does that mean they're going to try and change things, or everybody's just going to kind of resign to the way things are? No, there was there wasn't. Uh... 
an attempt to do electoral reform. Um, if, and there was actually direct elections of the prime minister. Uh, Netanyahu actually won the first time in 96 and then Barack in 99. Uh, but that wasn't a good system either. Uh, there are many, many different systems that have been, been done, that have been um, investigated. Uh, but what needs to happen is the large parties. So this time it would be like uh, the last election. There was talk in the beginning, right after the election, that the Likud, Israel Beitena, which is a Victor Lieberman's party, and Kadima, Tzipi Livni's party, would get together, form a government, change the electoral system, and call new elections. Uh, because you can't do it when you have these smaller parties in it. And it's mostly the smaller parties, which many of them are the religious parties or ones that are connected to the settlement movement. Um, they're really good at getting budgets out of the system. And people don't want to change that. And if you raise the threshold, which is another uh, thing that uh, people discuss, uh, some of those smaller parties are going to disappear. So it's in the interest of the minorities, more of the minorities, um, or people that are voting for a particular issue to keep the system the way it is. Because when, in order to form a coalition government of 61 seats, uh, the larger parties that, you know, for example, Likud had 27 the last time, Yisrael Beitano had about 15, so you needed to piece together a few smaller parties uh, in order to get that government. So you have to pay up for that. And sometimes it means over-representation over as in ministries, meaning more ministers than they actually deserve, or different programs and, and different uh, budgetary funding. So it's a problem. Uh, it's hard to break the cycle. I don't know uh, if this election around they'll, uh, uh, Netanyahu, if he's reelected, will be able to do it. Part of the problem now in the system with this election is Netanyahu is basically running unopposed, meaning there's no one really on the left that can challenge him as a credible, viable alternative for prime minister. So he's running an election against himself. So whereas Labor or Yair Lapid's party will get a number of seats um, and, and could get a lot of seats, there's no one who's really seen that could actually run the country. So it's, and some of those parties, including Labor, as a lot of people are saying, we're not going to go in with the Netanyahu government. So I think what we may be looking at after Election Day is a stalemate or a very right-of-center government, which will have a hard time governing because it will be a narrow coalition, and because um, it will not be good for relations with the United States. And that's a weakness, I think, that Netanyahu is experiencing right now. So talk about that for a second, relations with the United States. A couple uh, uh, very you know, public events over the last couple of weeks, uh, the issue with Gaza, and then the subsequent uh, vote on the non-member observer state, in the UN, and then followed by a decision to allow for planning in of building in an area called E1. Mm. And uh, I always, it's always interesting when you're still calling. It sounds like Area 59 in Nevada or whatever that place is. E1. Mm. It sounds very ominous. So, w where are we with relations with the United States? I think a lot of our listenership out there was probably disappointed in the fact that we ha that the president was reelected. They expected deterioration in relations with Israel. It didn't happen, certainly, with regard to the Gaza conflict. I know there were all these uh, apocalyptic predictions that, my God, if uh, Obama would be elected, uh, you know, terrible things will happen to Israel. I, I, I think uh, people should really think twice before they uh, insult 
and attack not just a sitting president, but someone who has a 50-50 chance of being reelected. In Obama's case, it was a little bit more. So uh, that wasn't wise, not only of American Jewry, many of whom obviously have the right to do that, but uh, to attack him specifically on Israel. Well, some, of those, some of those attacks were unfounded. But, uh, you know, it's thought that Israeli politicians also expressed an interest in who they would like to see in the White House. Anyone, also, in, anyone in particular? I don't know. I don't, there, there's been all sorts of rumors about uh, people uh, meddling in the, in the U.S. elections. So it's not clear who those people are, but uh, Israel should stay out of the U.S. elections, and it shouldn't become a, bi- uh, a partisan issue. Israel should be a bipartisan issue, uh, bipartisan issue, and it doesn't matter who's in the White House, but it seemed to matter to a lot of people. Uh, and I don't think the relations were are you know that great between uh, Netanyahu, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and, and President Obama. I think uh, Obama uh, uh, showed great support for Israel. During the uh, you know uh, war or battle in Gaza, you know the whole Iron Dome uh, system, which has been uh, you know brought to Israel, uh, Obama was involved in that, um, and I don't think Obama's looking for revenge. At the same time, uh, you know Obama supported Israel in the UN um, in the UN vote, and you know there seemed to be movement in Congress uh, to cut funding or to curtail funding to the Palestinian Authority as well as to the United Nations. And that would probably be a very, very good way to go right now, uh, especially given the relations between the U.S. and Israel. The Prime Minister decided that he was going to announce on a Friday afternoon at, you know, 4 o'clock that he'd be uh, approving new housing units. And Israel is becoming very, very isolated in Europe, certainly. Uh, where a number of our ambassadors have been called in for uh, for explanations. Um, you know, the word sanctions are uh, filling some of the newspapers, although I don't think we're there yet. Israel is becoming very, very isolated, and I think that's true with America also. You know, at some point, um, uh, Israel's uh, credit is going to run up with the United States if Israel continues to do things that are not in the, in the best interest of the United States. You've been in, on the inside. How important is it for the Israeli government within the cabinet, within the kitchen cabinet, within the prime minister's office? How how important is it what the United States thinks about individual decisions? Is everything run by? No, I, I think I think in this particular case, the U.S. was blindsided by this decision, um, and it depends. You know, a lot of decisions uh, the U.S. is informed. About beforehand, especially one the, those that are relevant. Um, but I think that you know Israelis have gotten the the idea that you know, look that they need to do anything that's that's in the best interest of Israel, and that's the number one concern. I think I think that there's been a, a fundamental problem over the years, and this is particularly true with the Likud governments and right of center uh, governments and politicians. Is that there's been a very uh, it's been very easy to reach out to the Christian, evangelical, and Republican community in America. And for the same reasons that uh, Romney didn't win, because that's not really a a growing demographic, Israel is neglecting um, Democrats or people that care about, you know, people whose main concern is democracy and human rights and minorities and gay rights and, and rule of law. We've forgotten about all those people. 
And at the end of the day, because we're, we're, we're basing our message to the evangelical community, we haven't really worked on our message to the democratic, peace-loving, minority-protecting community in the United States. And I think this, is, this relationship between the, uh, Obama and the Democratic administration and Netanyahu is part of an outgrowth of that. You know, it's easy for us to get that support from the evangelicals, so we go for that. And we've forgotten about a lot of other people. Fascinating. It's hard. It, look, it's hard from this side of the, of the Atlantic to make these appropriate assessments and to try and you know, push... Uh, you push appropriately, I guess, is the uh, would would be the best word uh, to in a certain direction. I I think a lot of American Jews take uh, certain things for granted as far as wh- how and what they should be doing, but uh, I, I I have a feeling that Israel Israel advocacy is stronger because of or is significantly strong be- and strengthened by the presence of evangelical Christians on that side. I'm I'm of, certainly of that opinion. Uh, and I know that they form a very important piece of the of of the of the support of Israel in Congress. But uh, certainly, I think it, you know it's one of those questions of being more Christian than the Pope. Is that is that the thing, the, the phrase that comes to mind? No, I, th- I think you just what I'm trying to say is you don't want to put all your falafel balls in one basket. Um, and and I think that's the right me- that. that's the metaphor I was actually looking for. That's that's the the, the uh, metaphor, uh, and that's to a certain extent that's what we've done, you know. And I and I think you know there's a lot of Israel advocacy going on. So if you're an Israel advocate, you, you know you don't necessarily want to go to war with a president in a re-election year, especially if that president's going to be reelected, you know. And I think that the Israelis didn't think it through, Americans didn't think it through, um, and now we have you, you know now the United States is the second term. Obama administration, Israeli government has to work with that. The Jewish community has to work with that. So on the Palestinian side, there's this ongoing struggle clearly between Hamas and Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, or Yehudah Shomron, more appropriately. Ha, ha, where is Mahmoud Abbas still a player? Is is was the? Uh, he's, a, he's a big player. He outsmarted everyone. He I, you was, know, Israelis were still uh, basking in the glory of the uh, uh, fake victory in Gaza, where we convinced ourselves that, you know, bombing 500 buildings uh, was a great victory. And we brought uh, Hamas to its knees, although they fired missiles into our capital, into Jerusalem, and into Tel Aviv, and they still have that capability. Uh, And we we haven't stopped that threat. So we deluded ourselves into thinking that we were victorious in Gaza, and just a week or two later, Abu Mazen was irrelevant because the Hamas had really shown leadership. Abu Mazen snuck by. He went to the UN, which he wasn't successful to do. He wasn't able to do September of, uh, of last year. He wasn't capable of doing that. He actually did it quietly, and he succeeded where he didn't succeed a year ago. And Israel, someone in Israel was sleeping on the job. So because you're saying you're saying this was under the radar screen. Well, nobody knew about it. I think he blindsided everyone and he did it. He made himself relevant again. And even some of the European nations said we felt sorry for him because he's out of the loop. So we had to give him this push. 
So now the Palestinians have observer nation status. Well, is there something is there something to be said about that? A lot of commentators here in the U.S. say you have to strengthen Abbas because he is a moderate. I mean, what do, what do people in Israel say about that? Uh, there are people that say that, uh, but I'm not convinced that he represents that many people because I think Hamas is much stronger and Fatah is not really in Gaza. Uh, Fatah is more in the West Bank. So, you know, on the one hand, you do have to strengthen them. On the other hand, how do you do that? It's always a question. So that's what people are trying to do. In the end, part of the reason that's happening is because there's no progress on the diplomatic front with the Palestinians. So with a stalemate, and then after bombing them in Gaza, this is what happens. So was it worth it? Was it really a victory, the victory in Gaza? I'm not convinced. Well, how do you achieve victory in Gaza? This might be outside of... You send in ground troops. You send in 10,000 ground troops, and you wipe out terrorist infrastructure. And you can't do that until you send in the ground troops. And Israel is highly unlikely to do that because we can't take military casualties. Once, uh, once boys and reservists start to be killed, we can't take it and we have to call the war off. But they can. And that's why they're, they're going to win the next battle and they're going to win the next war because they're willing to pay the price, and we're not willing to sacrifice and do what needs to be done in order to stop that threat. Right now we've left Gaza, and they have the capability of sending missiles to Jerusalem and sending missiles to Tel Aviv, and they're going to continue to arm themselves to do that. Don't you think it's the right of every country and the, the requirement of every country, the duty of every country to protect its civilians against these kinds of rocket attacks? How are we doing that? I certainly do. I, I, what is Israel's red line, then? As we you don't see have it. one. We don't really have one. The red line is, is that military casualties. Once those casualties start piling up, then we, we have to stop. We can take civilian casualties. So it was, Ashdod and so it was, it was and Israel. I guess that the conventional wisdom is that it was the U.S. It was U.S. pressure that kept them from a, a ground incursion. So you're saying... Right. There, there, was, there was U.S. pressure. So that's another failure of this Gaza invasion, is that... We got we propped up Egypt, meaning Morsi had no real play in the region. Now he was a peacemaker in Gaza, and Obama was back putting pressure on Netanyahu and back in the Middle East. So I think on a lot of areas, this Gaza operation failed miserably. I can't see the, the great successes. I think we failed in a lot of areas, and we're worse off than we were diplomatically, militarily, and we were before the whole operation started. That's kind of, I'm feeling kind of pessimistic at this point. Well, it's the holiday season in America, so you should cheer up. Okay, I'll do my best. It's, uh, I believe it's going to be holiday season in Israel as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we're, we're coming up to the Festival of Lights. Uh, oh, I was thinking of the elections, but uh, correct. <laughs> correct. Uh, just uh, yeah, one more question. I want to. I want to. Uh, I, I hope you're going to ask me because I know your listeners are interested about the the power struggle within Agudat Yisrael between the Litvaks and the Hasidim. Well, actually, that because that, 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 that I don't have a the real inside track other than to say the uh, the ultra orthodox the Haredi population in Israel is the fastest growing population in the country. But yet, Agudat Yisrael remains at five seats. How do you explain that? I think it's one of the miracles of, of Eretz Yisrael. So, I was actually getting to that. That actually is has long been, I guess, for the last couple years, in the last couple election cycles, 
something I've been very, very curious about. I imagine that it has something to do with voter participation, although they seem to say that everybody participates. They're obviously voting for other parties. But what I was going to say is that all this deal making that we talked about initially, all these parties, a lot of them are made up of themselves coalitions uh, of, of smaller interests, of, of very of micro interests, and they join together in order to get enough of a threshold to get into the Knesset. And, and correct. That's that's how good that's Israel. That's a good description of it. But even in the uh, even in the national religious camp, you have several smaller factions within there. C- correct. Uh, yeah. And- right. Well. Well. That's so that they can pass the threshold. Meaning the national religious party in this past election got three seats, and it looks like they're headed to get more seats now. Um, so what I would so they're they've gotten together with the national union party so that there wouldn't be more voter fra- fragmentation. Because it's possible that you're throwing out votes if you're not going to pass the threshold. And the voters in general like to see unity. They like to see groups getting together. They like to see a bigger group, a larger picture. And that does it for it. And that's why one of the reasons Likud got together with Israel Beitenu. That's one of the reasons uh, Maftal, uh, the National Religious Party, got together with the National Union Party. And uh, uh, the Agudat Yisrael, which is the not only just the Litvaks, but the various Hasidic sects that are in there and argue among themselves, that's correct, because they don't necessarily, each one of them, have enough to run their own Knesset person. And also there's a, there's a certain uh, you know, power in numbers, meaning the more seats you have, the more ability you, you have uh, you know, to be involved and to be in the government. Of course, Agudat Israel would never sit in the Israeli government, of course, because it's not a kosher government and not religious law. So they actually uh, are sort of in the government, and they would never be a minister in the government. No, they would be in the government, they'd never be a minister in the government. So the deputy minister of health is from Agudat Yisrael Litzman, and there's no minister of health. It's the prime minister. It's kind of like a, a halachic or legal fiction, like you, you sell your chametz on Pesach, but you really still own it. That's kind of uh, what they do here. We don't allow cynicism on the show. We only allow <laughs> we only allow spin. But uh, <laughs> that's but uh, certainly that's a good dose of, of cynicism. But it is. I have read uh, quite a few stories over the last couple days or weeks about the jockeying for position on these lists. What happens mm-hmm. to the guys who are left off the lists who don't get there? Do they do do they just become totally irrelevant for the next cycle? Are no, they... not necessarily. Some, well, some of them join the ones that don't join other political parties. Uh, they some of them go back to doing what they were doing before. Benny Begin is a great example of someone who had a great career both in politics and he's a a, a professor and a doctor of uh, geology, and he'll go back to the Israel if he wants to to the Israel Geological Institute. Uh, Don Meridor, if he doesn't go back to the Knesset, is a lawyer. Ah, so, um, so you're, you're bringing some up a, people have, have br- made politics a profession, so they're going to have a harder adjustment because they really don't know what to do outside of the Knesset. So you bring up a great point, and I think we'll we'll end with this. As far as the, the Likud had their primaries, which of course had uh, were marred by some technological glitches, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of old time names were swept aside. And I think a lot of the new names are associated also with the national religious camp. Uh, so you have a, a, a significant presence within the Likud party of, of national religious uh, figures or people who are, are or who are religious, I guess. Yes, it's, it's a very it's a very right list. And together with Cyril Baitano, it makes it very right, right. 
So it'll be interesting to see how the voters play out. The only other point I'd, I'd like to bring up uh, to end is what's going on, although it may not be so relevant to you, some of your voters, uh, what's going on in Shas. Shas has gone through their own internal um, changes with Arya Derry coming back. But I think the real story to watch and the real person to watch is the breakaway from Shas, the one who was fired by Ravavadi Yosef for actually, um, you know, not following party discipline, and that's uh, Ravam Salam, um, who is introducing some new concepts into the ultra-Orthodox world about being part of the army and working and not necessarily listening to some of, some of the rabbinical figures and especially the rabbinate, which sometimes is more interested in creating jobs than it is in actually uh, Jewish law. And, I, and he's certainly someone who has... A, um, a solid background and solid learning behind him, and he's he's uh, stirring the chilling pot, if you will, in some of these uh, religious enclaves. So does a guy who the, does a guy who stirs the chilling does he end up getting elected? Uh, it looks like he will. It looks like he will get elected because he does have support. Not only there's a lot of there's a lot of people within the ultra orthodox community that are also a little bit disillusioned with their leadership. As I said, the fastest growing community, and they're staying at uh, five seats in in the past ten or fifteen years. That's, there's, there's someone who's not voting for them. Uh, so there are people that are breaking with party lines. I think you're going to see that with Amsalem both within the uh, Sephardi and possibly Ashkenazi groups, but he's also getting support from secular Israelis, from Kiloni Israelis, that say, you know what, someone needs to talk about Jewish identity, someone needs to talk about breaking the monopoly of the rabbinate and of kashrut and of getting married and other things and conversions. You have to be more liberal with conversions. And he's saying these things. And it appeals to a lot of people because no one's dealing with these issues except so, fight so it does to the, keep the status quo. Does the existing leadership acknowledge that they have issues, or they just continue on because they can? Uh, well, I think that a lot of the existing leadership is some of them are living in the 1800s still. Well, if you, you know, have, but, but you they, have, they don't, they don't have internet. You know, I think one of the reasons of banning the internet was 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 not just because the reason that they said at the Met Stadium, it's because the internet provides people with information. And the best place to get information is in shul. Once you have internet, you don't necessarily have to go to shul to get that information. You can get really what's going on in your house. And that's a problem. Mitchell Barak, uh, president and founder of Kivun, a important polling and uh, advisory firm in Israel. He's a consultant and confidant of several Israeli prime ministers. And thank you very much. We hope to have you again on the show. Oh, we hope to be out there. So thank you for having me. Fantastic. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Spin Class with Michael Frege on the Nachum Siegel Network. And as usual, we're going to switch gears as we do just to keep people on their toes and keep them interested. We have a uh, joining us on the line, Ozzy Pabra, a staff writer at Capital New York, who is uh, has been in the New York Observer at WNYC, Salon, other publications, I followed Ozzy at his blogging for quite some time, and he is one of the most informative people people out there, journalists out there, reporting on New York City and New York State politics and beyond. Always has a good scoop, always knows what's going on, and I recommend his Twitter feed highly. Ozzy, welcome to Spin Class. Thanks for having me. So, Ozzy, you must be very in demand right now because there is so much going on in New York politically 
uh, that it's it's really hard to follow even for somebody who kind of knows what they're talking about. And I consider myself in the kind of knows what I'm talking about category. <laughs> so why don't you just give us an idea of who there there is this guy out there. He seems to have a Jewish name. His name is Jeff Klein. And who is right. he and why is he so important right now? And why is he upsetting the apple cart? Well, I'll I'll leave it to, to him to sort of explain why he's a upsetting the apple cart, but, but, but basically he's a state senator who represents parts of the Bronx and Westchester. And what he did a couple of years ago was create uh, what he called an independent democratic conference. He is an elected Democrat and he broke away from some of his colleagues uh, in the democratic conference and created his own you know, third group in the state Senate. And the reason why that's important is because the chamber is so closely divided that the now five members of the Independent Democratic Conference, which he leads, can align with either Republicans or Democrats to determine which party controls that chamber. And of course, as people who follow politics, even on the periphery, sort of understand that if you control the majority, you control what bills come up for a vote, who gets the bigger office, who gets more money for staff and for projects in their districts. So Klein is sort of the tail that can wag the dog and sort of determine which party is going to control the, the upper chamber of the state Senate. And just yesterday, he formalized a deal with Republicans uh, to, to sort of share power. So Republicans who lost seats and do not have a numerical majority in the state Senate will actually have uh, a functional majority coalition due to this deal. And it's all thanks to Jeff Klein. The Independent Democratic Conference, they're not Democrats... I guess, in a sense, they're sitting with the Democrats. They still, they're still part of the party. They are not Republicans. Right. They're kind of on their own. It's, I, I don't know if you followed our discussion beforehand with regard to Israel and parliamentary-style democracy. <laughs> are, are we headed towards parliamentary-style democracy in, in the New York State Senate? Or is this just a short-term type of thing? You know, eventually, well, we're gonna, they're going to sort this all out, and uh, the, the different party members will all go back to being happy with each other. Well, well, no, it's a great question. I, I mean, if, if you're asking whether this sets a precedent for somebody to declare that they are no longer part of the conference associated with the party line that they were elected on, you know, the, the, the standard by which you would determine that is by, like, whether or not they actually, A, announce it, and B, sort of work a deal where, where they can get recognized and, and get a seat at the, at the negotiating tables. You know, Jeff Klein was able to pull that off. Uh, just now, even though he, he formed a group um, over a year ago. And, you, you know, are we going to see more people say, you know what, I'm tired of the Republican Party, I'm tired of the Democratic Party, and I'm going to do this? I, I sort of doubt it. You, you know, you get grumblings about how the New York State Assembly is sort of run, that, that, that the Democrats sort of control it and don't give too much of a voice to, to dissenters. But there's really no impetus among those people in that chamber to really break away. Uh, there was a, a, an attempted coup against Sheldon Silver a couple of years ago, uh, who's the, the speaker from Lower Manhattan. But he seems to have it, like acknowledged his errors in governing at that point and, and made a course correction. And, and, and by most accounts, has been able to, to work with people within the conference to sort of prevent that from happening. The, the reason why you're sort of seeing this in the state Senate is for a couple of reasons. One was the historic dysfunction from when Democrats briefly controlled the state Senate. Number two, you have this unusual relationship between Andrew Cuomo, the, the Democratic governor, and the 
Republican majority who uniquely, you know, to Albany is a conference that really doesn't stand on, on too strongly on ideological grounds, but are really uh, more of a party or, or, or an organization that, that operates very pragmatically. You know, they're, they, they really don't distinguish themselves from the Democratic conference on major issues that, that you would expect. You know, they, they, they're generous to, to unions. They, they support the governor's, you know, socially uh, liberal but fiscally conservative agenda. So, so, so the real difference here is just who some of the players are, and so it's all pers- a- it's all personality conflict. Is that is that what it is? Go ahead and you get into a little tiff with somebody, and I want to get I'm going to start my own conference. Well, when you look at the agenda that Jeff Klein is urging the Republicans to pass, it looks very much like the Democratic agenda, which begs the question: you know, What's the difference between these groups other than some of the players who who make them up? So you know you you have issues like fracking that that's off the table that 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 the Republicans really aren't eager to sort of like work a compromise out and that Cuomo is still saying we we have to figure out the rules on that's hydrofracking so for natural right. gas up upstate correct I think that's a big issue correct. in the oh, for, for the upstate economy and uh, it, 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 it it's a huge issue which some people say can really turn around New York's economy and and possibly the country's economy and yet. Uh, there are Democrats who say, look, there are environmental concerns that really, really need to be explored before this thing is allowed to happen, if at all. So so you have a huge divide there. But but on other issues, Republicans are talking as if they're willing to do it, and and the difference there is whether or not you're going to index it and make the increases automatic, or you're just going to pass a bill for for a one-time increase. And then you have issues like like reforming the stop-and-frisk policy, which you know, Democrats who, who are m- mostly getting elected from New York City really care about and, and, and upstate, uh, you know, lawmakers are, are really not as affected too much by the issue and, and just sort of have a theoretical idea that, you know, they don't want to be seen as soft on crime if, if they pass a bill like this. So so the, the, there, there's a couple of issues that very easily could, could get passed. And, and, it asks, and it sort of begs the question, why do a handful of Democrats break away and make an, uh, an alliance with Republicans if what they're going to be doing is largely passing a Democratic agenda. Uh, absolutely. What what would right. be the answer to that? And uh, let me just throw <laughs> something. Sure. Let me throw something out there. There, are, if historically, I think that te- that you've you've been told that the tension within the Democratic Senate conference or Senate Democratic conference is what number one uh, racial, uh, for lack of a better word. Right. That's a mm-hmm. and uh, and geographic. That it's suburban right. versus suburban and upstate versus the city legislators. So right. why? So two questions for you is mm-hmm. is is this a result of of racial tension because they the IDC did gain uh, Senator Smith yesterday, so he is right. uh, African American and the former majority leader, I guess, for a short time. And right. number two is how come they haven't been able to attract some of the other upstate and suburban legislators to their flag? Uh, why if why have certain people stuck with the uh the senate democrats you, you know with with the question of diversity some people were were beginning to really make that an issue and, and assemblyman kareem kamara of brooklyn had explicitly said you know the independent democratic conference aligning with the republican majority you know to, to, to form a majority clearly doesn't represent the diversity that you would find in the rest of the state so he explicitly made that an issue, and after Malcolm Smith joined the conference, I, I spoke to Kamara, who said 
Smith's joining and the fact that it sort of breaks that diversity just underscores exactly how bad of a problem it was. But B, you extend the the diversity issue or, or the diversity question by saying, now that the makeup is a little bit more diverse, what are the policies and agenda that this new coalition is going to advance? Is it going to be the same as you would have gotten under a Democratic conference, which is much more diverse? And and he was sort of moving the ball or, or moving the barometer by, by where you measured diversity and how effective it is. So, so I wouldn't necessarily say that, that it's a direct re- result of, of something just as explicitly as racial diversity or or um, or people just, just trying to oust uh, John Sampson for some other reason other than the leadership he has demonstrated before. But but, but it was an issue, and, and in politics, perception can have a way of becoming reality. Um, as for the, as for why the IDC hasn't attracted more members from the suburbs, um, it, 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 it really comes down to who these people are that have been elected on the Democratic line and what they see as their clearest path to achieving things that they need in order to get reelected. Now, if you look at somebody like Andrea Stewart-Cousins, who is in Westchester, she became a, a Democratic hero by, by nearly ousting a Republican senator um, several years ago, yeah. and, and she, she, narrowly lost she, she narrowly lost her election by 18 votes. And Democrats said, look, you know, we can win outside of New York City, and Andrea Stewart-Cousins was an example of that, and her recount helped establish new precedents for how they count votes, which is something that, unfortunately... Go, to get it's going on again right now up in the Hudson Valley. Right, right, so. exactly. And, and Andre Stewart Cousins was one of the first places where Democrats can say, look, we can run outside of New York City with this kind of progressive agenda and we can win, but we also have to look at what happens in the courts after the election. And, and she was sort of uh, the person who personified that issue. She, you know, is, is under no inclination to, to sort of bolt from the Democratic conference, and she's one of the pillars of it. In fact, every now and then she's mentioned as a possible... Uh, replacement for John Sampson. But then you go over to Long Island where you have somebody like Craig Johnson. He was the person who won his seat after Elliot Spitzer campaigned heavily for him during a special election. And Elliot Spitzer created that special election by hiring away a Republican senator. He was, and Craig Johnson's candidacy was... Right, exactly, Mike Balboni. And and the the Craig Johnson candidacy was, in, in essence, an important part of how Elliot Spitzer is going to create a Democratic majority in the state Senate. What happens? He's representing, you know, uh, suburban, homeowning, moderate uh, voters who aren't interested in higher taxes to pay for things like the MTA subways. So he loses his reelection to a Republican, and now he is aligned as a spokesperson and advocate for the IDC. So even the person who just a few years ago, was a key instrument in creating a Democratic majority, has sort of left the fold and, and is now vocalizing support for this coalition operation. Well, so Craig it, it, has, the, has the luxury of not being in office to have to worry about it, which leads me right. to, to the question is, aren't they afraid of retaliation from Democratic stalwarts who see this as a betrayal? Uh, won't, won't they all get primaries uh, and... Uh, and yeah, because they they threatened to expel right. or they're trying to expel Simcha right. Felder from the Democratic Party in Brooklyn. Why right. haven't they? Why haven't you seen the same type of uh, thing? Or maybe you have with the IDC right. members. Well, that's a great question. What what Simcha Felder did? A, it was early and it was first, and you know the first person who walks through the door gets all the fanfare for for 
for good or for ill. Well, he's so not he, going to—he's not going to be the majority leader. Jeff Klein is. Right, but 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 what Felder did was announce he's going to align with Republicans. That was before it was clear that the IDC was going to go with Republicans and and cross that Rubicon. What, so so what Felder did was not work out a deal to somehow create this new power structure. He just said, I'm going to sit with Republicans and just go with them, end of story. And that is arguably the most important vote a legislator takes. You know, you, you could look at any election, local or national, where somebody says, don't vote for Congressman X because you'll end up with Nancy Pelosi as speaker. Don't vote for Senator Z because you'll end up with, you know, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer in the House, or, or, or anything like that, or don't vote for this congressperson, because if the Democrats take the majority, you'll get Charlie Rangel as the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. There's any number of instances where campaigns tie down their opponent by their party and say, look at the leading figures in their party. You will, you're electing someone on the Pelosi ticket, and, and, and there's all these ways to sort of you know, use party label and party association to bring down or boost up a candidacy. And what and what is and what's happening with Tim Gefelder is that he's saying you elected me as a Democrat, but I'm going to sit with Republicans. And the, there was a New York Times story that said you know voters in his district really don't matter that much. But there's a broad general sense that if he had made that intention clear during the campaign, he might have gotten a stronger challenge or even a primary from uh, from a Democrat who who might have said something different. So it's. It, so that's why he got so much criticism at first, and and secondly, with the IDC. Well, if you looked at if you looked at Simcha's campaign literature, the you barely saw the word Democrat on there. What you actually mostly saw was conservative. He actually ran on the conservative line as well, which uh, I, I don't I, I right. really don't buy the idea that anybody should have been surprised by this. But uh, but uh, go on with the IDC. Right, 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 right. Well, but but Felder also didn't say explicitly. That he would sit with Republicans, and and it, it it sort of seemed to be similar to how Obama said he was quote unquote evolving on the issue of same sex marriage. When everyone knew he was going to be supporting it, it was just a matter of when. Simkerfelder seemed to be hewing to a very similar type of rhetorical strategy of saying, you know, I'm, I'm open to sitting with anyone, but what that really translates to in a very practical sense is, you know, there's a really good chance I'm going to sit with Republicans. So so it it, it was. Something that, that that people could have seen very easily, but but what the IDC did was very interesting. These Democrats have sort of made clear that they are not going to raise their hand and vote for a Republican majority leader, because that very easily can be translated to voters in a very clear, direct attack message that this Democrat voted for a Republican leader. But what they're saying is that they're going to create a, a coalition, a bipartisan arrangement. And in, in a practical sense, it's hard to sort of be honest and cut that campaign ad to attack them when, when there's these caveats that are so large. So what they're doing is they're saying they're actually doing something that on paper sounds really good, bipartisan, coalition, you know, pragmatic, results-oriented. Those are all really good catchphrases that, that voters like to hear during the cacophony of a, of a campaign. But in a practical sense, they're doing something very similar to Simke Felter, which is they're putting their political weight in their capital, and they're formally making an alliance with Republicans to basically keep the Republican establishment in control of that state Senate. And what's going to change are the bills that come up for a vote and who gets committee chairmanships. And you can pretty much guarantee that it won't be anyone who was elected as a Democrat outside of the IDC. So they're, they're doing something very except, similar Except for to Felder, it. of course. Um, right, correct, and Simka Felder. So what, what's been the response of this is, A, the governor's taking a wait-and-see approach, which is 
many people are sort of viewing that as a tacit endorsement. He's saying, let's let's see how it plays out, which is a very unique position for someone who's not only the governor, but also the head of the New York State Democratic Party. The second thing that's happening is, you, you know, with, with the governor with pretty high approval ratings sort of giving cover to this kind of operation, you're getting the, the traditional groups that would normally be attacking this, the Working Families Party, some labor unions, you know, what they're saying is, okay, if you're going to do this, here's what we consider to be success. And, the, and they're in, on, in some of the legislative bills that are being talked about, they're trying to ferret out what exactly has to get passed for them to consider this IDC Republican coalition to be successful. So they're making, example, they're making it about the issues. Right, right. Or their, they're, they're or their they're, issues, they're make, I should say. Right. And they're making it about their issues, but they're also being very specific. Where, you know, Governor Cuomo released an op-ed saying, here's my litmus test, and you have to pass these bills, and one of them is, for example, minimum wage. What the advocates are saying is, you know, it's not just good enough to pass a minimum wage bill. It has to be one that is indexed that goes up automatically. Well, that's exactly what Jeff Klein had wanted earlier, but it's, it's what Republicans shot down before. So now the question is, do you get the original Jeff Klein bill, or do you get one that's watered down that Republicans can pass? And what the advocates are trying to say is, they're trying to redefine and be more specific and say, it's not just good enough to pass a bill with the name of the thing that we want. It has to be substantively exactly what we want. It has to be as good of what you could have gotten if the Democrats were in charge. And that's going to be the argument they're going to make. And they're going to try to make a more complicated but more substantive argument by saying, here's what Democrats would have passed. If the IDC and Republicans don't pass the same thing, it's a failure. Well, and, and, they're, and, and, and they're going to try to build that argument one issue at a time. Yeah, but the Democrats weren't capable of putting together the votes in order to govern. But uh, or at least the traditional Democrats. I'm not even sure what to right, call right. everybody these days. If uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess I guess somebody will have to coin a term, uh, IDCers or something like that. Uh, the IDC group. But but what happens to the Republicans here? Right, the Republicans have basically said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna be in power, but we're gonna have a Democrat agenda. What are the issues that are gonna important to the Republicans in the state Senate? What are those issues, and how are they going to remain relevant if all it is is that they're going to be passing uh, the governor's agenda? Uh, you know, they they had they were had a surprisingly weak showing in the in this past election. Uh, several right. races that we thought they would win, or we I'm saying uh, pro- right. people who follow these things thought they would win, they ended up not winning. So right, no, no, it's it, it's it's a great question. What's the relevancy of the Republican Party if if they're basically letting Jeff Klein write their agenda? I mean, I can't imagine well, that Mike Long, the Conservative Party chairman, is too happy about this arrangement. No, he 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 clearly isn't for for any number of reasons. Uh, least least alone is that if you have a a coalition between Republicans and quote unquote IDC members, what does that mean for the Conservative Party, which used to be the the, the people who sort of you know told the Republicans to jump, and they responded by saying how high. Um, so so, so you, you, you saw a model of how this could work out. If Republicans let something like same-sex marriage get voted on, you know, while they themselves largely abstain from it, then you could sort of see the argument where they said, we didn't block this bill, we, we let democracy happen, and people can vote any way they want, but, but each member... Or, or a majority of the members of the majority conference can vote against it. And but the results they, the results were terrible for the Republicans in, in that vote. Look at everybody who was either defeated in the primary or defeated in the general election uh, with regard um, who voted Republican. The four Republicans who voted for right. s- same-sex marriage. No, no, 
Only right, one but, of them was returned, and he was a Democrat. Right, but but the conference can say we didn't stand in the way of this thing. We let democracy take place, and each member decided how they wanted to vote. Whereas before, like when you had the Assembly Democrats block a vote on something like congestion pricing, you know that was a different matter where, where there wasn't even a chance to vote on the issue. Whereas here, the, what the Republicans did was they said we're not going to stand in the way, and we'll just let it happen. But but each individual member in that majority decided how they wanted to vote, and the majority of them voted to shoot it down, but it passed because a few Republicans broke away. And, and, and the idea is that the, the Republican Party can say that they worked with a really popular governor who in turn passed things that normally would not have passed, like a property tax cap. And if, and if Republicans can go around saying Cuomo is really popular and we are part of what made him popular, that's how they can justify what they're doing to voters. And voters, for as much as you, you and I and listeners like to sort of debate about the agenda and the party labels, most voters really just care about, is the road in front of their house okay? Is their property tax bill reasonable? Is the school where they're sending their kids you know, working? And are there enough police around to make sure that everyone feels safe and happy? So, so Ozzy, that's going to be kind of funny because they're going to be running in the next election with the governor in a sense, and the governor is going to be running on the other ticket. So you're going to have a very, you'll have a very strange marriage potentially of, uh, <laughs> if you can call it that, I, I, you know, it's, it's going to Absolutely. be. Right. So, you know, and, so and, it, it just and, goes back to the idea. Happened. It just goes back to the idea that Albany is a very, very funny place. You, you know, what's the saying in politics? You have uh, no, per, you know, you have, uh, you have no permanent friend, but permanent enemies or, or permanent interests. I mean, I mean, <laughs> exactly. as long as people can say, Hey, we both, you know, both our names are on this check that, you know, that got sent to your house and made you happy. Like everyone sort of makes out like a bandit. So, right? I so I guess the the lobbyists will be the the population best served uh, right now from from the from this. Uh just one more question as we wrap sure. up. Uh Hillary Clinton for mm-hmm. mayor? I, I I'm I'm a little bit astonished that this even somehow got got talked about. I mean, it would seem you know, to me that she would uh, you know, probably be in the driver's seat running for president. You know, any time that a person's name gets mentioned as a possible mayoral candidate, you can pretty much assume that, that somebody wakes up happy and smiling, even if it's not something that's ever going to happen. You know, it's, it's a flattering thing to be considered, you know, someone who, who, who would do good at that job. So yeah. Hillary Clinton, the, the current secretary of state, even though she wants to step down, the former first lady wants to be mayor of New York City. Uh, okay. No, I mean, there's been no reporting that, that she's expressed any interest in it. And in fact, the, the, the Times report that, that first revealed this phone call made it clear that she expressed no interest in it. And, and, and it's not even clear how serious the mayor was in, in suggesting she run for it. But That's got to be a very odd phone call, though. You know, hey, Hillary, this is Mike. I'm calling. Uh, you want to run for mayor? You know, why not? You, you know, yeah, okay, you, okay. You know, of, of all the things that have been said about this mayor, you know, making bold calls like that, I think, is the least of them. So it, it's, it, it's not unheard of for him to sort of call powerful people and say, hey, are, are you interested in in this gig in, in New York City. You know, he, he had a conversation with Kathy Black that led to her becoming the New York City schools chancellor. That, that didn't exactly work out for him. But he's, he's made other appointments that, that apparently have. So, so, but, but he's someone who, who's at least, well, this is you not, could argue, has This is a little bit lot. short of an appointment, Ozzy. I, I, I mean, I appreciate the, the idea right. of that, but uh, the idea that he's just going to call it and, you know, whoever he picks is going to be the person. Uh, how, how did his other lady friend... Uh, Christine Quinn uh, react to this news. Well, well, when uh, the news broke shortly after she was leaving an event, and I and a few other reporters sort of chased after her, and 
shouted out questions, and she responded by saying she didn't know anything about it. And the next day, the mayor made a great demonstration of expressing confidence in Quinn's leadership so far. But it it it, it underscores the the real story here is how it underscores the fact that Christine Quinn is running basically with the mayor's support, which is going to be tested as she goes through the rigors of a Democratic primary where voters are going to want her to move further to the left and distinguish herself from the mayor's agenda, you know, while somehow keeping enough of the Bloomberg support mechanism in kind place. Kind of a, a challenging balancing act, similar to what the IDC and the Republicans are going to have to figure out in Albany. So we're going to have to leave it there right now. My producer is actually giving me the evil eye, telling me <laughs> that we are done for this week. Ozzy Pabra, thank you very much for really giving us some good clarity on uh, the New York political situation. This is Michael Fragan, Spin Class. Another week is done. Stay tuned for the Book of Life with Charlie Harari on the Nachum Siegel Network. Mm-hmm.